Plot twists. We're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story where it takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, comedy and impressions lover. And I'm Fran, super fan of reality TV and rom-coms. And we're from now. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. Well, in the intro, we say TV and film stars. This week, definitely a TV star. But definitely. A very different one. Journalist, newsreader, documentary maker, quite frankly, TV royalty, and a certified national treasure. Sir Trevor MacDonald. I know, and I don't know if this is inappropriate, but Probably. for me, when I think of Sir Trevor MacDonald growing up, the thing that comes to mind is... Because he has this just iconic voice, this authoritative, informative, but kind of calming voice that has really guided us through so many crucial moments of history, of culture, of politics... And over the course of 50 years, he was the first black newsreader in Britain. You know, born in Trinidad, comes over to work here in the UK. And some of the people that he's interviewed, you talked about crucial moments in history. He was the first journalist to interview Mandela post-prison release. Crazy. He's had encounters with Saddam Hussein, with Colonel Gaddafi. Just quite extraordinary. And we obviously did quite a lot of prep <laughs> because we're interviewing a world-class journalist here. Yeah, we had to. And the moment that he walked into the room, he had the aura that you would expect from Sir Trevor MacDonald. But actually what was great is having seen him on screen in quite serious situations is that really immediately he was so warm and charming. humorous and charming. And he was, he was cracking the jokes. It was, it was great. I knew we were in for a good chat. And one of his passions, one of his loves is poetry. So we thought that might be actually quite a nice way to kick off proceedings. So here it is. Sir Trevor MacDonald on Plot Twist. Sir Trevor, it's a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. I know this is not something that you ordinarily do. So to have you on today really is a pleasure. And I thought I'd do something a little bit different to start things off. And I okay. thought I'd quote a poem. I know you love your poetry. Yes, I um, do. It's a poem that's actually in your book, which is a fantastic read, by the way. It's the last few lines of Robert Frost's poem. The Road Not Taken. But I thought it was a nice summary of your, of your story. It's a good start for the listeners to see. I absolutely love that poem, you know, The Road Not Taken. Yes. And, mm. and where he begins by saying, you know, there were two roads and, you know, I thought I would take the other one, but I knew perhaps I never would. But then he takes the one less trodden. Yes. Mm. And, but the line, which for me is, is almost profound, is that he says, and that has made all the difference. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, And it has, for me, made all the difference because um, my decision to come to work in London, which had been done before by a lot of people from the Caribbean, but not to do what I came to do. They came to study, they came to work, but didn't come to go to the BBC or to ITV. So mine in that way was rather different. Mm. Um, but it has made all the difference. I absolutely adore that line. I'll just... Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less travelled by. 
and that has made all the difference. That's it's lovely. Made all the difference. It's beautiful, isn't it? It, it really is. It's, and it's, it summarizes it's, it's, you and your story very well, uh, which we'll come on to in a second. But I just thought, to start with, how are you? How has the last two years been for you? It's been a funny old time. It's been a funny old time, and it's much more stressful than you think. I certainly, and I think to some extent, we all feel that we are reasonably well adjusted and we can cope with mm. the idiosyncrasies and the vagaries of life, you know, reasonably easily. And you go through you go through them. And then I realize I have been affected by it all. You know, you change your way of living. You are much more careful about what you do and where you go. Mm. And you notice yourself sort of crossing the other side of the road to make sure you don't, you know, collide with too many people. It has made a difference. And the lack of personal contact too. I did something once very early in the first lockdown for the British Medical Association, and it was something like this, but we communicated with people all around the world, well, in a few parts of the world. And it was for about an hour and a half this conversation went on. And I went back home and I couldn't sleep. And I realized what it was. I had been talking to people. <laughs> uh, uh, um, I'd had contact with, with, mm. with people. Otherwise, you sit around for a lot of the time. I've been very lucky in, in the fact that I've been working a lot too. But I heard the president of the United States last night or something talking about caution, not panic. In fact, we all secretly panicked. You know, you don't want to get this thing. Mm. And as I say, we all think we can cope. And then we realized we have been affected by mm. it all. It's, it, I suppose it's, always, it's been in your DNA, hasn't it, to communicate with people and to suddenly have that taken away. It must and to been, meet people. And to meet and, people, yes, yeah. yeah. It must yeah. have been a bit of a, bit of a shock. Um, yeah. But let's, uh, let, let's move on from that. I thought I'd say there's a, there's a section in your book you talk about meeting Sammy Davis Jr. and Sam Cooke. And I just want to say for us, this is, this is our equivalent. Yeah. <laughs> yes. oh, oh, well, oh, yeah, well, no, they, they are seriously great people. I had this... I was terribly lucky. I, I mean, you, you know, you work hard and all that, and people tell you you must strive, and that's true. But there's a great deal of luck in, in what you do. And, and by great good fortune, my radio station in the West Indies said, you know, you'd go to the airport and meet these people. So anybody who came into Trinidad, I was at the airport to meet them. And so I met all these people. And I suppose in a way when I look back at it and when I reflect on it seriously. It was the beginning of what I would take mm -hmm. an interest in throughout my life, you know, meeting people turning up. And it was, I said, the airport, because what usually happened was that not all these people were coming to Trinidad, but they were using it in transit and I could get people in transit. So, you know, if a great music group or somebody or the Halle Orchestra were coming, although they did spend a couple of days in Trinidad, you know, but you could go there and meet them at the airport. And there was a little, funny little VIP room. <laughs> where I remember Sammy Davis was very annoyed because I think I stepped on his toes or something. <laughs> because, because, you know, if Sammy Davis comes into this tiny room, then a whole bit of Trinidad wants to come into the room as well. Yeah. I mean, he's a, you know, a god and... Um, it was rather crowded, and I think I stepped on his toe. He was not very pleased about that. <laughs> but um, he forgave me and did an interview. And, and a lot of people, you know, you, you met that way. So it was, for me, a very interesting start. Well, we'll try not to step on your toes uh, after yeah. this interview. But um, <laughs> talking of Trinidad, growing up in, in the 40s and 50s in Trinidad, what was that like? What was life like? 
it, it was a fairly, a fairly good life. We were never particularly financially well off. My father, who is a great man, worked many hours. In addition to his job in the oil refinery, he did odd jobs. He had a market garden. We kept pigs, but we we enjoyed ourselves. We made our own fun. Mm. Um, I had a brother who is young, just younger than me. He was very good at making cricket bats, so we made um, cricket bats <laughs> and played cricket in the in the street, on tiny streets where cars <clears throat> occasionally came by. <laughs> but they had to stop at, uh, and wait till the over was ended so that they could yeah wait your turn. They, they had to wait back. <laughs> we we did that and 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 we we had great fun. We didn't you know feel desperately impoverished in any way. There was. I suppose, when you look at it more broadly, a real sense of community. Mm. People knew each other and they cared about each other. I was instructed by my parents that I must always say hello to people passing in the in the street. And my father said to me, he said, if you ever got into trouble, maybe one of those people who were friends of mine will help you out. Yeah. So I would get told off if, in my own introspective way, I didn't say hello to Mr. Smith, who was on the other side of the road. And he would say to my father, your, your, your son thing came by the other day, but he didn't say hello to me. And my father said, you didn't say hello to Mr. Smith the other morning. <laughs> and and I, I suppose what that meant was that there was a real sense that we were, we were very much together. My mother, on the other hand, she was a very Christian lady who felt very sorry for people who didn't have as much as we have, not that we had very much. And I would be asked to take parcels of food round to neighbours. And the only time I stepped off, I put a wrong step on doing that was, you know, she said to me, well, these people have quite a few children and they need help. And I would say, Mum, why do they have so many kids? You know, <laughs> I was obviously going much too far. So I just did what I was supposed to do. And there's a wonderful, wonderful tradition in the West Indies if you knocked at somebody's door and said, can you tell me where Mr. John lives? The person would just turn away and they would say, Harry, could you take this man to Mr. John's door? So they would get one of the yeah. children to take you there. I think this is, that's really high class community life. Well, I suppose it creates a moral fortitude, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, suppose, I suppose your parents were the driving force in, in your own moral fortitude. They were, I was very lucky. I had the most wonderful parents in the world. They were not particularly well read, but they had this idea of what a young person like me needed to do to succeed. They made you work hard. You must do well at school. My father had the habit of ambushing teachers as they walked by our house to check on how I was doing at school. Do you know? I don't know what these teachers may have thought or masters may have thought of his, you, you know, talking to them in this way. But although he, I don't know whether my father ever read a novel or anything, but he had a very keen sense of what I had to do to succeed. And they imparted that to me, and I was terribly, terribly, terribly lucky. As Tom said, you're obviously an, an exceptional communicator and being able to get onto a level with people. Is that something you had from a young age? Or do you think it was that sense of community and being able to speak to different people and that kind of just naturally instilled that in you? I mean, in, in a small community, 
you know, there's no TikTok or Twitter or, or whatever. <laughs> what a nice world. <laughs> I know. And, and, and so you talked. I mean, you know, that, that's how you found out. It wasn't virtual. Any any sort of... No, you, you know, so the only way. So I, I never gave it much thought, actually, but maybe that is how where it all began. You had to communicate. And then, of course, I got into radio, which is, mm. you know, the basis of it all, really. You, you had to be able to do it fairly well. It must have been lovely for your father that he wanted that success for you. And it seemed like maybe perhaps, a, I don't know if it was a Trinidad or a broader West Indian approach where you, you mentioned earlier about going to London, going to New York, going to Toronto. It was a sign of success and, and growth beyond the island. For him years later, when he visits London, I believe it was his only time, and that experience with the school children. Oh, yes. My father, I don't think at that point, the story you're referring to is that I took my father around and we went to that bit near the Archbishop of Canterbury's house where on the other side of the road, you can look across the river to that really uplifting view of Westminster. You know, it's, it's stunning, stunning, mm. stunning view. And this bus came up and one child recognised me, I suppose, as I had started on television then. And this one child came up and asked, could I say, and of course the entire bus of, of children. And I remember, <laughs> well, what I remember about it is, you know, I thought this was becoming rather ordinary in my life now, but my father took a few steps back <laughs> just to, I don't think my father had ever seen anybody or that he knew what an autograph was. Mm. I mean, people in Trinidad didn't go around getting other people's signatures <laughs> unless, unless you wanted to take them to court or something. I was going to say, is it some more forgery? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, um, so that I, you, you know, I've, I always remembered it and it's warm of you to bring it up because I thought my father would have realised that I had not been an entire failure, that I had I had probably survived and been recognised as having survived. Well, he had a big beaming smile, didn't he, when you yeah, turned he had, around? Yeah, he had a big warm smile. He, my father was a lovely man and, and had this engaging warmth of personality and a lovely smile. I love that. Should we ask a first plot twist question? I think it's time. It's time, yeah. So as we briefly have touched upon, you've had so many experiences that for a lot of people would be completely unexpected and they would never have imagined might have unfolded. But if you had to pick one standout moment in your life, whether it's on camera or off camera, that has completely just changed the course of your story, what moment do you think you'd pick? Yes. Do, do you know, I've been so fortunate in this regard that I've met many, many people I could cite as having given me that golden moment. I always refer to the Mandela one because it's in a way, it's sort of introspective in a way in that I couldn't believe that somebody who had been incarcerated for 27 years mm. would emerge so conspicuously unbitter, so engaged in the thoughts of community and what South Africa needed to do to get into the world of nations. I couldn't believe how he saw p possibilities where nobody Others else did. Didn't. I mm. kept saying to him, you know, how on earth are you going to come to an accommodation with the National Party? The, you know, these guys are never, ever going to do this with you. And he said, if you're prepared to sit down and talk seriously, 
everything is possible. And I said, no, 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 everything is not possible. Some things may be possible, but the fundamental things people will stick to their core on. You know, they wouldn't do it. And he said, no, if you're prepared to sit down and talk seriously and responsibly, everything is possible. And much, much later on, that was 1990 when I met him, much later on, I went back to South Africa to do a documentary. And I met one of his secretaries and she confirmed to me that I was right in guessing that that was quite extraordinary of him to do that because she said the ANC people said to him, what have you been guaranteed? What have you been told that you will definitely get? One man, one vote? What, you know, is this absolutely assured? And he said, no, I haven't I haven't been guaranteed anything, but I'm taking people on trust and I'm hoping that we can work through these. Uh, that is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and he also, what I liked, believed in a South Africa of all the races. I'm told, I didn't witness this, but it's an anecdote with one of the people who worked there told me that the first day he went into the presidential office, he went around and said, I want you all to stay because I will need the help of all of you if I'm to make any success of this job. He really believed in a community of all the races. And for a man who had suffered so much, I think that was quite extraordinary. And he's never, when I think of these things, he's never very far away from my thoughts. Did the interview itself catch you off guard? Because were you expecting him to open up more and perhaps be perhaps be a bit more bitter, be a bit more... I, I was expecting that he would reflect more of the difficulties that he'd had. And I remember, I mean, you asked a good question because I kept saying about the hardships. And to be very honest, I was looking for a line, you know, mm. in the Daily Express the following day. <laughs> you know, Mandela, yeah, yeah. Mandela tells Trev I was beaten every day or or, or whatever. Mm. He, he never, ever did. And then five years later, when the Rugby World Cup was happening in South Africa, ITV sent me back there because they wanted to do a program around the World Cup, which ITV had the rights to. And they thought I could get an interview with Mandela, which I did. And we went into the office very early and um, he asked for the lights to be turned down. We turned them down and then he said, could you turn them down a bit more? And we turned them down a bit more. And he said, could you turn them down again? And I said to him, you know, Mr. President, if they turn these lights down anymore, they won't be able to see you or me on on this television screen. And he said, I'm terribly, terribly sorry. I know I'm making, uh, you know, a big meal of it, but I have had problems with my eyes. And then he said, there's splinters in my eyes got into my eyes. And on Robin Island, I, um, he said it happened on Robin Island. Yeah. He said, and it came from my breaking rocks on Robin Island, and it was the first intimation mm. five years after I first met him that he ever made or you know had made to me about hardships, splinters in my eyes, um, wow. and never in that first interview did he ever remark on. I thought that's extraordinary because you must go into interviews expecting someone to be a certain way. So it must yes. be quite disarming yeah. when they're not. Well, I mean, you again, you're absolutely right, because to be very honest, it's. I thought in some respects, you know, this is an interview that a five-year-old could do. The basic question was, as I instanced earlier, how on earth are you going to come to a deal with the National Party? I mean, yeah. what are the bits and pieces which needed to be brought together so that any kind of accommodation was possible? 
And he just had this faith. He said, you know, if you want to talk seriously, if you're... And, you know, when I reflect now, I think that is true even today. If you really want to solve these problems, we're not going to do it with guns or or bullets or, you know, Kalashnikovs or bombs or whatever. We're going to have to sit down at some stage, however wide our differences are. Let's talk about it. We're going to have to sit down and talk about it and come to an accommodation. It's mm-hmm. the only way, unless we want to keep fighting about it. The only way is going to be so that he, you know, he he had a point. <laughs> mm, that's a great thing to take, like you say, forward into your own life. Of yeah. just you can sit down and regardless yeah. of the gap, yeah. Yeah. there's a way forward yeah. if you're willing it's, to talk. It's it's what you have to do. Mm. I, I love in that second interview, he remembered you and you're on a first name basis. I thought, you know, of all people to be on a first name <laughs> basis, Mandela's up there. It, I mean, it, it, it was, <laughs> it's one of the warmest moments of my life. What usually happened was, and I, I see this looking back on it now, you would go into a room, it was in London, he came to London. And of course, when he comes into a room, the entire room mm. just yes. coalesces around him. And I was almost fighting to, to, <laughs> to sort of get my way, even to get close to him. And he saw me and he says, Trevor, how are you? And I thought, <laughs> all my ships have come in at once. Yeah, You know, that the great man recognize me i it's a a little thing but for me it was you know very very warming you said about stories that and 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 broader events that there can be a more emotive angle to it was mandela and apartheid before that because that wasn't just it wasn't just a one story you know at 10 o'clock news this was an ongoing thing for years and years as was northern ireland and all these other big mass events that you covered but was that period perhaps the most emotive for you to cover it was. I was a black man in a country which was run by white South Africans and the black South Africans who made up more, about 80% of the population, mm. were virtually, virtually excluded, certainly out of the decision-making processes. And I, I, I felt it. And I became very sort of acutely aware of the, the way things worked. And... Um, Sometimes there were extraordinary circumstances. I, I once covered a, a a white South African rally. I think Dr. Andrews Trunick was the head of the Conservative Party in those days. At the end of it, and the other thing about white South Africans and, you know, people even in the apartheid regime is that sometimes their natural hospitality transcended their political beliefs. In, what I mean by that is that they would still invite you in for a cup of tea or something or or still agree to, t- to speak to you about politics. They wanted to talk about politics. And so I, I remember at the end of this white rally where I was probably one of the few black faces there, if not the only one, they decided to take me to lunch. I was never, you know, terribly comfortable about it, but, <laughs> but you know, Dr. Tronick and one of his people to take me to lunch. And they stood on the side of the street and they said, now... Where can we take Trevor to lunch? Because unless some of these places had an international license, I would not be allowed in. Wow. So, so although they were up in the hierarchy of white South Africans, they stood on the side of the street and said, where can we take mm. Trevor to lunch? And just, just occasionally moments like that, you think, wow, mm. this is a strange place. I mean, I found many other instances of its strangeness. But that, 
you know, you mentioned the word emotive. That really hit home to me. One thing we spoke about before that you just triggered, actually, that was quite interesting, putting yourself in those uncomfortable environments, of which you've, you've been in many. Which one stands out the most? Because we were saying before, weren't we, Fran, about are there points where you're thinking, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen next? Am I actually, could I make it through this? Yeah, as in you've been in some quite dangerous scenarios. Like I think there was something else in your book where you're saying, you know, journalists run towards the danger where everyone else runs away. But has there ever been a moment where you really felt that it's got to a level that you're like, could go over the line here in terms of my safety? I was frequently scared. I'm a card-carrying coward. When I left the West Indies, I'd never heard a bomb go off. I'd never heard the word, I don't think I knew the word Kalashnikov, mm. which now every five-year-old in this country probably knows. And I joined ITN and I wanted to be sent to Northern Ireland because I wanted to do everything that every other reporter was doing. I didn't want to be, you know, exceptional in any way of not being asked to do certain things. So I went to Northern Ireland. I was terrified. This was a place where people got killed. It was a war zone. It, it, was, it was a war zone. And I was terrified. I lived in terror. And I... I did silly things like I remember, you know, I used to stay at the uh, Europa Hotel where, which was frequently bombed. Mm. And it was the way these things were done is that, you know, sometimes there were controlled explosions. We would all be ushered out and we'd stand in the street and wait for the place to go up. Um, and I remember, you know, in, in a way, these incidents became, dare I say, quite mundane. It happened mm. six or seven times while I, while I was in the hotel. They were never, by the way, aiming to kill us. Nobody ever did that. But I remember, although this was sort of programmed in a way because they would blow the thing up, I always took off and started running down the street the other way. I, I could not stop myself. Yeah. And I discovered that, explosions which you think happen in your head, you have a sort of rumbling from the stomach up mm. and they're really terrifying. And uh, I was perpetually scared. And I survived because of the colleagues who had done it a lot of times before. And they, you know, I shielded under their wings. Uh, again, very luckily to work with such nice people. And um, that's how I survived. But... On the on the hard political side, I wanted to be part of the Northern Ireland story. It was a time when Northern Ireland was the top of the news, believe it or not, every evening on ITN, and I wanted to be seen on the top story. Mm. I, I was It was my ambition to get ahead in the profession I'd chosen. I was going to say, it must be... That ambition must be so strong to be driving you forward, like you say, when there's controlled explosions, yeah, you feel like you physically but, want to run. But, you know, you you say that the, the reason was much more explicable in my case. I didn't want to be employed in ITN as the token black reporter who mm -hmm. didn't go on some stories. I wanted to do everything everybody else did. Yeah. So I pushed myself. So it was partly ambition. But it was partly to justify myself. I, when I went to ITN and I was offered a, a job, I had absolutely no idea why I was offered a job. 
the editor was a lovely man called Nigel Ryan, who's no longer with us, said to me, talk to people around who have come into this firm, like Anthony Carthew and so on, who, and all these other big names, and asked them what they thought. And I went back and I said, I'll, I'll think about it. And I went back to Bush House and they said, how did it go? And I said, well, I was offered a job. And they said, well, when are you starting? I said, well, I said I needed time to think about it. They said, you idiot, <laughs> call up now. Bring them now. <laughs> call up now and take the job. And I genuinely, you know, was surprised to be offered the job. So I was trying to, to satisfy myself about why I was being employed. I had set some goals in my own life and I wanted to make sure that this was not a, a bizarre departure. Because you had a job opportunity before that and it was almost suggested that you would be the sort of the token black guy. <laughs> yeah, and, yes. you, and, and it was a great job, but you said, I a, don't want to be that and yes, therefore was, you turned was, it down. I was at Bush House. I was called up by somebody high up in the BBC and there was smoked salmon sandwiches and lovely white wine. And um, I thought he had heard that I had been a brilliant broadcaster in Trinidad or he had heard that when television came to Trinidad for the few years before I left, that I had done two programs and I read the news and he'd heard that I was absolutely brilliant. He'd never heard of Trinidad television <laughs> or, or Trinidad. And he said, um, we've come under a little bit of pressure from the race relations board to, you know, and my heart fell. I thought, fine, it's the BBC or whoever should have diversity in its ideas of employment, but it was not for me. I didn't want to be the person who was employed because he was black. And, mm. you know, it is carried on today, and I know this is slightly controversial because I, diversity is an important thing, but you can't employ people because they're black or because this person's a woman, mm -hmm. because everybody will know, oh, she's only here because they want more women in the job. That's very unedifying and undignified for people. If you thought that's the only reason, mm. you would like to know that you were employed because you can do the job. And what I think the core of diversity should entail, it should entail not disqualifying people mm. from doing what they can very well do because of who they are. Giving the, an equal platform. Given yeah. equality yeah. should be the thing, yeah. not not necessarily. So, uh, so yes, I no, I didn't want to be employed under those circumstances. I mean, it played out, it obviously played out very well afterwards with ITN. <laughs> yeah, but... I was lucky. <laughs> no, no. Um, but one thing I did want to ask, which you, you alluded to just a second ago, talking about Northern Ireland in the second part, and is evident in your book throughout, is this relentless determination. And it, it stems right from your youth, that there was this ambition to go to London. And obviously you have this passion for journalism and, and radio and, 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 and then TV from that. Where does that come from? Because it, you're putting yourself in these very dangerous environments, but throughout that, you still go back and you're absolutely <laughs> relentless with it. That you could go and take a flight, you know, you're meant to have a family due later, but you go and take a flight because yeah. there's, there's a breaking story. There is that enormous drive in you. Yeah. It's a bit crazy, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, you know, I, and, and I, you know, I don't know how true or relevant this is, but, my parents, you know, we were brought up in very straightened circumstances. And I was always told that the way, the 
only, only way to achieve anything is hard work. Mm. The, the, and that's the only thing. In other words, nobody in our family is going to leave me a lot of money. I'm not going to get a favor because my father knows the governor general. The only, only way was hard work, which is where my parents, as I mentioned earlier, came in because they really emphasized that. In other words, they said, this is your only chance. Mm. Is this or nothing? And my, my mother and my father, they always remembered all these things. My father used to say, reach for the stars and you may get to the top of the trees. And my mother used to quote endlessly and sometimes rather boringly. And I think it's a Stevenson poem. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. And I thought, how am I going to leave footprints on the sands of time? <laughs> this, is, this is crazy. But it was drummed into you that this is what you need to do if you are going to have any kind of success. There is no other way. I mean, you've not just had the success. I think you've left many footprints well, <laughs> in I'm many places sure other that. than I think sand. you're at the top of the tree. I was going to ask how the view is. How's the view? The other question that we like to ask our guests, and you, you've spoken about meeting Mandela and that being hugely influential and your parents instilling sort of your work ethic and that drive. But has there been anyone that people might be surprised to know from a person perspective that has influenced you in an unexpected way? Yes, I mean, I came here to London before I ever dreamt of leaving the West Indies to cover Trinidad's Independence Conference. And um, there's a lovely, lovely man called Larry Constantine, who is a famous cricketer and one of the most famous men in Trinidad. And Trinidad is a tiny, tiny country. <laughs> and if you become famous there, everybody knows you and every, everybody's your cousin. <laughs> And I, I, Mr. I, Smith, you were saying hello to I, I, suddenly a relative. I, I hope I'm not doing him an injustice, but my parents seem to think they know him, although I had no evidence that they actually... So <laughs> it, it was because of his status. And the problem about this conference was that I had a 10-minute radio report to do every night to Radio Trinidad. The problem was, at the end of the day, the communique said the Trinidad and Tobago delegation met members from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and discussed methods by which Trinidad may move to independence, and they've agreed to meet again tomorrow morning at 10.30. How on earth am I going to make 10 minutes out of that? <laughs> and so I went to... Larry Constantine was staying at the Westbury in Bond Street, or Bond Street, and I went there every afternoon at the conference, and I said, you've got to help me out here. I mean, what was discussed at this meeting? And he was terribly cautious. He was a very... He was a loyally man, so he wouldn't tell me anything. He said, if you ask me direct questions, I will try and answer them honestly. Anyway, so I devised a method where I would probe and probe and probe. And so got, um, you know, got my 10-minute reports most night. I remembered it very well because at the end of the conference, the man who was going to be prime minister, Eric Williams, at the Mayfair Hotel in London, and he said to me, what have you been sending back to Trinidad every night? And I said not wanting to shop my informant, <laughs> I, I, I said, um, oh, um, Dr. Williams, not very much. I, you know, I've been... And he said, that's not what I hear. I hear that everybody in Trinidad is listening to you on the radio. <laughs> Absorbed in those 10 minutes. So I, I, the reason everybody was, was that it was the only radio station who had sent somebody to London. So 
it was probably because they had nothing else to listen to. But anyway, but he kind of saved my career. Mm. After that, I was looked at differently at the radio station as somebody who could do these big, big jobs. Being sent to London to cover a conference was the first time I ever, you know, came to London. So 1962? In 62. I mean, that was a big deal for me. Mm. And having succeeded through Larry in getting something to say every night was a formative part of of what I was to do later. Mm. It's a constant process of learning to do things better. You have never reached a stage in this your business and mine where we think we are perfect. It's never... Mm. You have to keep putting the hard work in. I've spent hours and hours thinking of, of things. I went to Iraq before the Gulf, first Gulf War to interview Saddam Hussein. And it was one of the most challenging things I had to do because he was not, as I discovered, somebody that people knew. He never went anywhere. He never saw very many people. He saw the King of Jordan occasionally. Nothing was known about him. When I got there, I discovered that the British ambassador didn't know much about him. And, you know, I don't. I didn't think Saddam had cocktail parties for ambassadors and all that. And I had to work terribly, terribly hard to discover how to get anything out of him. I'm not sure I ever did, but, but you know, you have to be prepared to put the time in. And what's your view on, obviously, you know, Rewind however many years ago when the main form that people got news was television broadcast or newspapers, whereas these days with the evolution of social media and how it optimises to, you know, your interests and what you're interacting with, it feels like information feels more readily accessible to people. Does that make being a journalist more challenging to try and sort of represent those viewpoints and kind of cut through that noise? Absolutely right. Paradoxically, it makes it more difficult. And I think to put it bluntly, to distinguish what is truth or what Mm. is true and what is not. The problem with some aspects of social media is that you can say anything. Mm. You know, whereas in the trade that we would like to think that we're in, we have to try to make sure that what we say is truthful, that it's accurate, Mm. that it's well-balanced, that it's fair. You know, we have to try to stick to all those eternal virtues of Mm. journalism throughout the years. I'm not very sure that all of social media would agree that they pay, you know, total attention to all those things. You know, sometimes what some aspects of social media do is to get people to react. It's provoking. That's, that's different. And that is why one of the other things about, you know, the way I kind of conducted myself, and it's what I found easier to do. I was doing news at 10, but I was in the office at half past 11, 12 every day because reading the news itself with the greatest respect to all the great people who've done it, is not a particularly great art. I think what is interesting is deciding what you do on that night, what you tell people, deciding how you do it. Mm. How do you interest somebody in Norwich about what's going on in Syria? Why should they care? Mm. How how do you make it relevant enough to their lives Mm. to make them feel they have a connection with it? That takes work. 
Is that why you probably prefer doing documentaries, for example, because you can then cover more of the story and have more of your own creative input? Well, I like doing that because I've gone to the part of life where I stopped doing the news. And you are absolutely right. It It is terribly, terribly different. Documentaries, you have to engage somebody in commercial television time for 56 minutes. Mm. These days, unless you do it terribly well, unless you hook them mm. and don't let them go, they're gone. And some of those documentaries you've done, so a few that I've watched have been, you know, where you're interviewing serial killers on death row and, and they say extremely shocking things. Yes. How do you keep <laughs> your composure? And like you say, that that kind of central line of trying to unearth the story, not impart your opinion it's quite astounding to watch how you manage to kind of land the point but actually fully keep your composure. Yes, it's a very interesting thing to do. When I went, for example, to the prisons, I had never visited a prison in the United Kingdom before and still haven't. I've never, I've never been to a oh. prison yet. I, plot twist. That's I, the plot twist. I, I, I have this fear of coming too close to any kind of incarceration, but... Somehow I felt that because it was America, it was far enough away. And I, <laughs> a little bit removed. <laughs> a little bit removed. But the other point is, and, you know, you asked a very good question. I thought very hard about how we do these things. And the first principle was we're not there to judge these people. They have been judged. Mm. And, and I'm not a, a judge or a jury. So we're going in and they are going to help us make interesting television programs. So... We were fairly courteous in asking them what they did. And they, interestingly, responded in kind. What surprised me was how, frankly, some people talked about what they had done. Mm. Um, I never forget one guy who I still have, you know, memories of, who said to me, he said, you know, I suppose I was always going to end up here because if I'm let out tomorrow and I have no money and I have a gun, I may commit a crime, and I will always probably come back in here. Mm. He said, "I'm that's the sort of personality I am. And I was, I was quite shocked that people were to talk so honestly. Yeah, yeah. and so mm. brilliantly at, at, you know, what their own view on their life was. I wanted to ask you about what makes you happy, but before we do, I just want to go back to... <laughs> what makes me happy? No, 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 but, yeah, behind, no behind the scenes and, and what, what makes you happy. But before we do, I just quickly, you mentioned about Saddam Hussein, and it's a section in your book that you talk about, which I just find the whole thing, how it gets set up, the weeks leading up to it, the quick flight out to Baghdad, but then that process between when you land to then actually meeting them, there's a bit of waiting time and there's a yeah. few mind games. And it's it, an extraordinary it, sequence to then meeting the man itself, which I think you've said is one of the most nervous occasions. It was because, you know, I quite frankly, everybody knew about Saddam's reputation and I didn't, he was not the first on my dinner list. To, to, <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I, you know, when I thought about having a great evening with a lovely glass of wine, I didn't immediately think of Saddam Hussein. Um, so it, it was a, a tough job. I, I learned a lot, though. You put it very well. I remember the first thing was that they sort of said, you know, go back to your hotel and wait and we'll tell you when. And, and I, we went back and then the call came. I said, come down, to, you know, and got into this car and they were very reluctant to say where we were going. Um, and I thought, this is very strange. 
why am I getting into a strange car not knowing where I was going? And then I discovered the driver had no idea where we were going because as we came to a huge roundabout, the major who was sitting next to the Iraqi major who was sitting next to the driver would tap on the dashboard and say, second turning on the right. So I said, the driver doesn't know where we're going. <laughs> what is this? And we turned up at this presidential palace, which I didn't know was a presidential palace. A man impeccably dressed came out to meet us. And this was about half past four in the afternoon. The timing is important here for this story. And he said, welcome, you know, smiling, very, very... The Iraqis are some of the most hospitable people in the world. They're lovely people. And he was terribly warm and inviting and so on. And he said, what would you like for breakfast? And like most like most, most people from England who do this, and you, you think, well, he obviously his language is not that very good. He means dinner. So I said, you mean for dinner? Because it's half past four mm. in the afternoon. And he said, no, I mean breakfast. <laughs> so without being told... I was just being told we were spending the night. Until that mm. point, we had no idea we were going to spend the night. And that's the way it all ran. Nobody told you anything. And so the whole process of getting to the president went on. And at the end of the interview, I remember I went back to my room and there were about half a dozen people from the Ministry of Information in my room drinking my whiskey uh, and um, and and they it sounds said like you need a big whiskey by and this they point. said and they said how how was it and i went into great detail about the interview what they were asking me was what was he like mm. i had had a privilege which they never met him so you got in in that fraction of a second you began to understand what iraq was like mm. at the top level these guys worked for him for years. They had never been on the same street as he was. Wow. And, and they were asking me, what was he like? What was, you know? And I'd gone on about, oh, the interview was this. They didn't want to yeah. think about the interview. <laughs> they wanted to know what was what's he like. And in, in, in fact, at the interview itself, there were about half a dozen of his so-called cabinet members sitting there. And it was very uncomfortable because... An interview is something like this set up here where two of us or three of us are talking together. But there were 10 of us around. So, and I, for the first time, almost lost my temper. And I said, you know, what on earth are you guys doing here? You know, don't you have anything to do, you know, on an evening? And one of the guys took me aside and he said, you don't understand what's happening here, do you? And I said, of course I understand. I'm here to interview your president. And he said... We never see him ask questions which he's agreed to answer. So there was no prime minister's question time on Iraqi television. <laughs> no, not so. Um, this was a true dictatorship. But, but what that told me was, to be very honest with you, those little incidences told me more about the country than I got from the interview. Mm. The interview was entirely predictable. Well, the interview itself is is quite extraordinary because you're in this very challenging environment. The whole process to get there, the people in the room, the pressure. But you go straight in. You go with quite an aggressive line. You don't you don't take I, a, 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 a build-up. I, I went a little too hard. And you find out um, later he was quite he was quite angry. They were that. they were not very pleased. <laughs> <laughs> they were not very pleased. I was told by his his man here 
that they were not very pleased. Curiously, when I was publishing this book, when I was writing this book, the editor of Orion said to me, he said, that first question you asked the president, he said, I've been having problems about it in the book. And I said, what's the problem? You know, I did. And he said, the problem about it was you were not only being tough on the president, you were sort of insulting the entire Arab nation. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, that, you know, yeah, I, if I live my life again, I would have chosen my words a little more carefully. The one thing I would say in my own defense is that there was a great deal of controversy about whether Saddam Hussein should ever be interviewed on British television. And in fact, even among the ITV companies, there was some dispute about whether, if it was not tough enough, it would ever be aired. Mm. Now, that is an unenviable position to be in. I'm in Baghdad on an exclusive interview, and my companies back here are saying, if it's not good enough, we're not going to run it. I was terrified. Yeah, the pressure is... The, the pressure was immense. So that's my excuse for being probably a little so discourteous to the president. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just loved it how it said that, you know, how nervous you were. And, I'm, you know, you building up the tension of going but there. But I still had to ask. You but then, have, you, you know, you go, you you go, have you to, go in. You, you have to you, do it. You've got to do it. I, I would choose a different form of words now. But, I, you know, it would still be... He, he had invaded a neighbouring country at that human time. Human rights abuse. Yeah. Human rights. Mm. At that time, he was also holding a few British hostages. Do you remember? He had there some kids that, he yes. had, mm. that yeah. the Iraqis were holding. And American as well. And, and, think, and American. Yeah. Do you know, the, no excuse for not asking the tough questions. You know, no mm. excuse. And this is the only British television interview that he's ever done. So... I'm making good excuses. No, I'm making good excuses for myself. No, not at all. I just, I just love that you were in this vulnerable position. But it's like, no, I'm going straight in. You still have to do the job. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing that we discussed before was around, you know, in this book, you talk about your professional life, and and we covered a lot of the themes. But wondered, like, behind the scenes, what does Sir Trevor enjoy? You know, you love your cricket, you love your poetry, but what make what makes you laugh? What makes you what? I love humour on television. I, I, I remember. Adlai Stevenson or somebody saying after Kennedy was shot about that one of the things that made him great was he had a great sense of humor. And I've always thought that humor is what makes us survive. Do you know the fact that you could see the, not only the odd side, but the really, you know, funny side of what people do and what people say. So I watch a lot of you know, shows on television. My kids tell me I watch the same things over and over again. And they're absolutely right. <laughs> you know, David Jason and Fools and Horses. And all oh, that. I love it. And <laughs> Vicar of Dibley and all these things I watch. And Frasier. And I I love things that make me laugh. Um, mm. I love reading. I love books. And I love poetry. I haven't done it since the lockdown so much now. But I love going to the cinema. I love, I love the pictures. But I do love sport and I love going to sport. I love, love cricket. watching cricket. I love watching football. We have a divided family in this. My son is an Arsenal supporter. I'm a Tottenham supporter. But... Oh, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm from a Tottenham family. I know, so that's I good. know. Yeah, you know, so, um, you know, we have a lot to talk about in, 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 in that way. But no, I, I, I find a lot of things to do. And I discovered late in life that I can also be very idle and do very little. And sometimes I sort of realise, you know, sometimes on a weekend when there's so many football matches, I realise, you know, I have done nothing for several hours 
but watch football. And in some of the teams, I'm not even interested. I've always had a, a fascination about live television, you know, because this was rather rare for me in Trinidad. I used to, the reason my father bought us a radio was so that I would not go out to my friends late at night when West Indies played Australia. And the time difference meant I would come back much too late to do my homework. And uh, the idea that you can still sit in your room and watch something happening in Kanpo in India <laughs> yesterday, New Zealand were playing India. You, you know, I I find it's that mind blowing. Yeah, it's. I think it's extraordinary. I know, you know, walking on the moon and so on is interesting, but <laughs> playing cricket in Brisbane is is for me. And being able to sit and, and watch it here, I I still have a thrill about that. I I love that. Yeah, it's it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? How everything has evolved, and it's so so readily available, I suppose, yeah. as well with it. Who were the big sort of heroes for you growing up? Who were the sort of idols that you looked to? I mean, there's the, the cricketers of the likes of Walcott and... Yeah, and Frank but... Worrell and, and these people. They, they were mainly sporting figures, really, because yeah. that's the world we knew. My parents always pointed out to me other people who succeeded. One of the ways in which my father did that thing I've talked a lot about, about encouraging you to do better, was that he would say, that's Mr. Smith. His, his son is... Um, studying medicine at Edinburgh, you know, and, and yeah. uh, oh, that, that, that's, you know, Mr. Jones. His, his, his daughter is in, in somewhere in America and, and she's training to be a lawyer. You were always pointed to the people who did well. The success, yeah. My, my mother occasionally pointed to those who didn't do well and who ended up in not too good circumstances and said, you know, if you don't work hard enough, you'll end up like, like him. I know. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you, you were repeatedly, you know, they tried their best to point you in the right direction. Speaking of your parents, though, is it true that when you were in Northern Ireland that you would speak to your mum and be like, yeah, all fine here, nothing much going on? Because your parents if they knew the extent of kind of those dangerous environments, that must have been quite worrying for them. It was quite worrying and I was worried for them because news about Northern Ireland goes around the world. I mean, mm. you know, we, we live in that this sort of global world now. So I would call my mother and say, you know, Mama, I'm in, I'm in Belfast, but, you know, it's all quiet here. There's nothing happening here. And what I remember about it, you know, or I would say, I'm in Beirut. I don't think my mother knew where Beirut was and she would simply say to me I would wax on about how you know it was calm and so on which was not always true <laughs> and and she would say to me but why <laughs> <laughs> you know and I could never find an answer to explain to her why or what I was doing in Beirut or what I was doing in Belfast. You should say it so you can say to Mr. Smith, my son's in Beirut. Yeah, I know, I, I know, <laughs> I know, yes. But she, you know, she always said, I always remember that. She would say, but why? Yeah, I, I couldn't explain. <laughs> I suppose you'd be asking yourself that, wouldn't you? I, 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 I was asking myself that a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why am I doing this? What's it like for you now? I mean, obviously, the last two years have been a little bit different, but we, on the theme of heroes, for you, you know, you will be a hero for many people in, in the UK and in, in Trinidad as well. What's it like when you go back to Trinidad? What's the? I haven't been for a little while, and sadly, before this book was done, I was invited out there, but then the lockdown came. Mm. I really, really missed going back there, and they 
what is it like? I don't think they can understand how I ended up where I ended up. I think it's still a bit of a a mystery. And I'm not too sure I do a very good job of explaining how it happened. Because, you know, a lot of it was accidental. I mentioned earlier that I came here to cover Trinidad's Independence Conference. And I had quite in ordinary ways met many people from the BBC. And I remember saying to somebody at the Overseas Regional Service, the World Service, if ever there's a job, you know, you must you must let me know. I'd love to come and, and work here. And somebody actually called me up one day from the BBC World Service and, and said, would you like to come to London? And um, I to tell the story half jokingly, but they were so generous that they even paid for my books to come because I I started collecting a little library and they they brought my books over as well. So that That's was wonderful. terribly generous of, of them. And, and you must really have made an impression on them. For them wonderful. For you. Well, I, yes, I'm, yeah. I mean, uh, they, they, at, um, there was a, a good connection between the BBC Overseas Service and mm. West Indies because we took a, a number of their programs. Mm. And, and so there was a relationship. So they knew of me and they, they knew what we did on the radio station. For whatever reason, they, they, and I came to Bush House that way. So I keep saying about luck. I was extraordinarily lucky to have been given that chance. And then I kept boasting to my friends at Bush House how I had done television. And they said, if you think you're so good, why don't you apply to this new place called <laughs> ITN? And, and, <laughs> and I did. I went and, and ITN offered me a, a job. So, yeah, it, it's uh, a, a lot of loose ends tied themselves up and were bound together by a great deal of good fortune. You're saying that reminds me of Ronnie Barker. He gets a BAFTA, it's a Lifetime Achievement Award. And it's one of my favourite speeches, you know, that sort of winner's speech, you know, that yeah. you get at the Oscars yeah. and all these different yeah. events. And he says, instead of uh, talking about his career and thanking people, he just says, what luck that I met this person in 1973 and that enabled me to meet David Jason to do Open All Hours. What luck that... Yeah. Also, he's like like yourself, very talented. But it just reminded me of that I thought it was very nice. Yeah, it's you. You need you need just that bit of good fortune, mm. and we we all we all need it. I mean, it is true that you can make a bit of your luck, because I think it's Tiger Woods who said, um, I, "I get lucky when I practice hard." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do, do, do you know? In, in other yeah. words, your luck comes when you work hard. So I think there is a kind of connection between those two. But yes, we all need to meet somebody who gives you a good idea about something to do, you know, and that hopefully spurs you on. Are you quite a reflective man generally? Do you like to reflect I, I on? I reflect on some things. I, I um, look back on some things with great pleasure, you know, and the way, you know, life turns and, and you have these chances. I, For example, I met President Bush the Younger who... I never agreed with politically. I certainly thought the whole Iraq episode was ill-conceived. And he turned out to be a extremely warm, amiable, charming man. And at one stage in 2003, before the invasion of Iraq, I was supposed to do an interview of about 25 minutes with him. And after about 10 minutes, he said, I don't want to do any more. He didn't like the nature of the questions, uh, again, um, obviously. <laughs> I see you laughing, uh, um, uh, meaning that I probably chose them. No, 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 I was just saying, you know, why are you invading Iraq? And and it was very clear that, you know, 
nobody yeah, had it. And, yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, and and then he said, so we'll stop now. And um, this was after about ten minutes, and said, I'll take you on a tour of the West Wing and the Oval Office. And I reflect on that, to use your word, because to this day I remember how annoyed I was at not getting my allotted time for the interview. And I thought, I've come across the Atlantic. What am I going to do with 10 minutes? And I didn't see any value in being taken around the West Wing and the Oval Office by the president. And I ended up in the Oval Office being shown around by a sitting president of the United States. And only then did it begin to occur to me, well, this isn't bad. Yeah, this is quite <laughs> once in a lifetime. Yeah, This isn't bad at all. And in fact, it was so good that the following day, we would laugh among ourselves and said, were we really mm. in the Oval Office yesterday being shown around <laughs> by the president? Because that was really something. So... I, I, again, I reflect on, on, you know, the good fortune of having done that with somebody of whom I didn't have a great political opinion um, mm. because, uh, you know, privately, you know, I thought the whole Iraq thing was a bit of a disaster. But um, no, I thought that was a, that was a great moment mm. for me. And, you know, and, and I felt it personally. I, I thought, wow, you, you know. It's quite a something. Trinidadian boy being yeah. Well, this is the oh. thing. What would the young Trinidadian boy? I know. I know. Say think to that. that. Yeah. Or yeah. the fact that you were the first black yeah. presenter on yeah. national television in Britain. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Enormous pride. Yes. I, I at the time, you, you, you know, I was so focused on not messing up that I never realised what had happened. Mm. I remember somebody came round to one of the offices I was in and said from one of the papers and said, we won't, won't take your picture. And I said to my colleague, said, why does he want to take my picture? I, I don't understand. Why does the Daily Express or the Daily Mail have an interest? And he says, you idiot. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you know, so, yeah. We've reflected on the past, maybe look forward to the future. What, coming into New Year 2022, what is in store for you? Have you got any plans or any aspirations that coming into the New Year? I think of other things I could do, you know, and I know this sounds silly, but it's who I am. I never see the point of not being mentally active and doing things. Mm. I, I think it's really important. I, well, I think it's desperately important. I think it's the way to sanity and, and not insanity. And I like to work and I, I, I'm fortunate in that I get asked to do interesting projects. And I, I you know, I, I think this... Well, why not? Mm -hmm. um, at my most boring, I am apt to quote Tennyson to people who ask this question. And um, Tennyson says somewhere, I think it's in Ulysses, he says, um, how dull it is to pause, to rust unburnished and not to shine in use as though to breathe were life. Mm. How <laughs> dull it is to pause. You know, people say, I'm going to retire so I can spend more time playing golf. You can work and play golf, you know. Keep going. Work and play tennis. So, you know, so I like the idea of keeping the mind active and so on by doing 
Is there any one particular thing, though, that you're still... You still feel the box is left unticked? I mean, you've had so many fascinating stories, is I must possible? say. It's been, is, is it possible? I don't know if it physically I'm is possible. I'm not sure possible. it's possible. Is it possible? But is there something... Once, um, somebody once suggested that I go to... I, I like wine, and um, somebody suggested that I go to Napa Valley to do a thing on wine. And very wise people at the... I think it was ITV or something, it says, <laughs> the great problem is if we send Trevor there, we'll never get him back. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a very wise you comment. You said, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, there, there are things I would l like to do, but no no, no great burning no. topic which I wanted to do. I've always loved working in America, and there are certain aspects of political America which has become so toxic now. And I have a, a sort of paradoxical feeling about whether I would like to be involved doing that or not because I find it so unpleasant because I've, I've always enjoyed so much working in America. And when I see what it's become, you know, certainly the last five or six years, the vaccination, for example, you know, the number of people who don't want to have it and how that's become a political, you know, mm, position message, to take, yeah. um, I, I get you know, rather sad about some of the controversies. And I th I thought I'd maybe like to do that. But then I think, maybe, you know, Napa Valley is probably a better idea. Get to a wine region instead. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not to be difficult, but I would watch it. So I'm just, you know, just putting the <laughs> idea out there. Can I just come there. with you and yes, help yes, with the wine tasting? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I think uh, people would tune in it's to, to be enjoyed. It's to be enjoyed among in good company. Absolutely. I have to say, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And Thank you so much for asking me. Reading your book and hearing more about your, your life and your stories, it's just been an absolute pleasure. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Huge, huge thank you to Sir Trevor MacDonald. I think I can speak for both of us when I say that we really actually felt quite humbled sitting in a room with him. I would go far as saying it's a career highlight just yeah, to, to share that experience. And the stories we knew, we had an inkling before from the research, but to hear it first count like that, it was mind-blowing. And the one thing that really stood out was we knew he'd be a man of integrity. We knew there'd be the professionalism but the sheer determination to go into mm. those environments about Northern Ireland, about uh, South Africa and these challenges. So damn, all these challenging situations. But he just had, from a young age, clearly, this passion and drive that was unmatched. And it's funny because he kept using the word luck. You know, I'm just yeah. I'm just fortunate because I was lucky with that opportunity. And yes, you know, he may have had opportunities arise that were unexpected. But the reason he's done as well as he has is because he's got the talent, he's been resilient, he's been determined, like you say, and he's just driven his career forward in a way that really is quite unmatched. Yeah, and I love that, you know, some of those values that he has in terms of his attitudes towards journalism and how that is almost sort of manifested from how he was brought up in Trinidad with his parents and, and how his Dad would have been so proud of him. And you could see it on his face in the room when he was talking about it. The way that he speaks about his upbringing, that sense of community, of 
valuing and treating people with respect. And I think the most profound thing that he said that I actually do think maybe I'd take it forward my plot twist moment <laughs> as my Trevor McDonald was my person was when he said, you know, get two people in a room and regardless of how far apart their opinions are, find a reasonable way to talk it through. And actually, that is so impactful. And be willing to compromise. And be willing to compromise. Which is what I'd recommend to ITV because I want to see Sir Trevor McDonald doing a wine-based documentary in the Napa Valley region. <laughs> Although the way he was speaking, it wouldn't be him doing a documentary. It would be a documentary of how they tried to get Sir Trevor MacDonald home from Napa Valley <laughs> yeah. because he was intent on staying there. <laughs> no, for Jake's side, that would be actually quite good. But he was, he was so humorous. Like, he'd be telling yeah. these stories yeah. and I'd a glance across to you and we'd both be, like, open-mouthed, like, in shock. But then he'd get a little glint in his eye and tell a little anecdote yeah, about it. Yeah. And it was just it was just brilliant. He even called out humour, though, didn't he? He said about the importance of it for all of us. And I suppose especially for him where he's been in these really harrowing environments in, in some cases that you probably do need to cling on to a bit of humour in order to get through that and actually maintain some sort of mental stability. Yeah, I think that's really important that you have that balance when you have a profession You've like his. To. And he clearly has found a way to do that and... Honestly, that did not disappoint. So, yeah, a big thank you to Sir Trevor McDonald. We were just truly humbled by that experience. Mm. And uh, we hope to see more of him on our screen next year. And for us next week, Fran, we've got a great duo, Michael Sheen and Natalie Emmanuel. Yes, we are chatting to them about their new film, The Last Train to Christmas, which you can watch on now from the 18th of December. And because it's December... And we're approaching Christmas, guys. All I can say is we'll see you next week and get cracking open those advent calendars. Ciao. Ho, ho, ho.